0: From Loyola University, Chicago School of Law and WLUW, this is The Podvocate. We're law students exploring the vanguard of the legal world with experts from our backyard and beyond. Today, we're going to be demystifying law school with Director of Academic Success and BARC programs, Professor Melissa Hale. Subscribe to The Podvocate wherever you get your podcasts and join us every Saturday evening at 6 p.m on WLUW 88.7 Chicago. For more information about this episode and our guests, please visit our website at thepodvocate.com and check out our social media
1: pages. Welcome back to The Podvocate. My name is Christy Paredes, and I'm here with Professor Melissa Hale. Today we'll be discussing some questions prospective students may have about law school. Professor Hale, can you please introduce yourself to our listeners?
2: I am Professor Melissa Hale. I am the Director of Academic Success and Bar Programs at Loyola University, Chicago.
1: Thank you. So I think a common question is, what should students major in before law school? How should they go about making this decision?
2: There is no one right major. When I work with students at Loyola, and I've worked at two other law schools as well, they come from all different backgrounds all over the place from science to history to literature to theater to music when i was in law school our the person who was at the very top of our class was actually an nyu theater major um which kind of surprised us all because i think we went in with the idea that everyone needs some sort of pre law major um law school does involve quite a bit of reading and writing So a lot of people think there's a benefit to the liberal arts majors, your English, your history, your political science. And that is true because I think those majors get you used to the amount of reading and writing to a certain degree. At the same time, there are many liberal arts majors who are frustrated that legal writing and the type of writing we do in law school is very different. One such person that was very surprised about that was me um, because I was a political science major. And the writing style was just very different from what I was used to. And in fact, sometimes people with a science or a math background do very well with the writing because they're used to the formula. Uh, Legal writing can be like a math formula and, um, So there are benefits. There are pros and cons to everything. I say major in something that you're passionate about that you're going to enjoy. I was a political science major and a psychology major. Neither helped nor hurt me in law school. They just had no bearing on law school. Um, The psychology major sort of helps me with what I do now, teaching, because my psych major, the concentration was developmental psychology and learning. So that kind of works with what I do now, but it had no no help for law school Um, and even political science, which some people think is going to tie very well into law school. The way you learn political science is often very different from the way you learn law. So even though I'd had sort of an undergrad constitution class, that did not prepare me for taking constitutional law, for example. So do what you enjoy.
1: And what should students look for when choosing a law school? So you
2: want to be comfortable A lot of people think I want to go to the highest ranked law school that I can get into. And that's not always a bad idea, um, because I will be honest, we're still in a world where the higher ranked your law school is, the more career opportunities you're probably going to get. Having said that, you're going to be stuck at this school for three to four years. You want to be comfortable with the people. You want to be comfortable with your classmates. These are going to be your colleagues. They're hopefully your close friends you want to be comfortable with the faculty. You want to be able to count on people that will write you letters of recommendation that will, that you feel support you. So don't just kind of go into the mathematical, this is the highest ranked school at the U S news and report. And I'm going to go there really make sure you feel comfortable with where you're going, look for things again, faculty support is huge. Make sure you're comfortable on campus when you can visit. I know we've been in a pandemic, so a lot has been virtual. But get a feel for what campus is like. Little things. This sounds silly, but are you know what is your commute like to campus? If you're moving to a new city. What do you? How do you feel about that city? Are you going to enjoy yourself or be miserable for three years? Talk to alumni, alumni that will be honest with you. <laughs> um, and you know, if a lot of alumni you speak to are very comfortable kind of being a cheerleader for the school, that's usually a good sign. And you can kind of tell when you talk to them if they have reservations or if they're trying to be diplomatic about something, maybe that's not such a good sign. Um, Talk to students who are currently enrolled. What are they like? Are they welcoming? What do they have to say about the school? And also talk to career services, see what kind of employment the graduates get. Because that's a big thing. Like oftentimes, depending on what kind of career you want to go into, and that might change based on Before law school, your first year of law school, your third year of law school, you might change your mind multiple times, but kind of start looking at the path that you might want to take and look at where those lawyers have gone to school. And it's not always, again, just go for the highest rank. There can be other benefits. For example, Loyola has a really great health law program. So um, a lot of people might want to go to Loyola for health law specifically because of our program. The other thing to think about is finances. I went to The lowest ranked school that I got into, not on purpose, but because they gave me a full ride. And I thought that that was a pretty good, you know, as a first generation student who did not have a lot of family wealth or any family wealth, having the school say, hey, we'll pay tuition and all that kind of stuff really helped with, I still need to take out student loans because that school is in Boston and it was expensive, but it's a lot less than some of my colleagues have, especially if they went to other schools and it was a slightly smaller school. So the relationships I had with my professors really panned out. I'm still close with many of them. So that's always helpful. Um, So just know yourself, know what you're looking for and don't let other people sway you kind of ask yourself, can I see myself here? Am I comfortable here? Is this a place where I'm going to live and thrive for three to four years?
1: How will law school be different from undergrad?
2: In your undergraduate programs and other graduate programs as well, if you're coming to law school from a master's or another program, you typically relied on secondary sources. What I mean by that is in undergrad, your textbooks, for the most part, are secondary sources that someone else has put together. Someone else, like if you take a history book, someone else has used the primary sources, other people's letters or journals or documents, and piece that together into the information you need into a history textbook. But in law school um, and in lawyering, it's your job to use the primary source. And that takes an adjustment. And I don't think people tell you that. I am trying to sort of get that message out and make it clear at orientation because it occurs to me that that is something that even by the time you get to your third year, you don't really realize why the reading in law school is so different. And it's because it hasn't really been distilled into a secondary source. You're expected to do the distilling. And that is because we're reading case law and it's not easy to read. Which speaking of something else that I noticed a lot of students don't know coming into law school, I didn't know this and no one really explains it, is that when I say we're reading primary sources, we are reading cases and our system of law is built upon these cases. A case is a judicial opinion written by judges, and all of our law is based upon that. So even if there's a statute, even if there's a written code somewhere, so you know cities, states, the federal government, there's usually a code written, like you wanna know what you can do in your city for parking. There's probably somewhere where the city has written down a code, but even then, Cases help us interpret that code. This is all the Supreme Court does for the most part. We have a constitution, that's a code, but the Supreme Court interprets it with its opinions. And then we, the lawyers, use those opinions to figure out what the law means. And that is called common law. So it's it's weird. <laughs> and it's kind of when no one really tells you what you're doing, it's a little bit of an odd adjustment. And our law is built on this for hundreds of years. Um, When you start reading cases, depending on the subject, some of your cases will be from the 1700s. And the language is kind of outdated um, and it just gets a bit strange. So you're training yourself to read those cases, those judicial opinions, and figure out what you need from each case. And that is very, very different. But the reason we do it is because that's what lawyers do. So um, we can't just tell you, here is the law because that can change and we might not be able to cover everything that you'll be practicing. So we have to teach you how to find the law yourself um, and look for it, which is frustrating. um, But you do get there. You will, it gets easier and easier. The first case I read, I wanted to cry because I thought that I could read. And I, I remember thinking to myself, why is this taking so long? Why don't I get this? I thought I was good at reading. Um, But by the time you're into a few cases, middle of your first semester, definitely by the end of your first semester, it's getting easier. The other main difference is typically there's one exam that determines your entire grade. This is not a great thing because usually you don't have a way to kind of test yourself, right? If you're used to exams every month or Every couple of weeks to kind of test your knowledge, waiting till the very end to see if you're sort of on the right track is not ideal. Some professors, this depends on the school as well as the professor, are starting to use midterms and quizzes. However, even if you have a professor that uses a midterm or a quiz, they're not always weighted that heavily, meaning they'll they'll either be a practice, like they'll say, oh, the midterm doesn't count for much or it's only 5% or something to that effect. Still take it seriously, because that's the only way you have to really gauge how you're doing and figure out how you're doing in that subject. And the feedback or meeting with your professor to talk about that feedback is a great way to see if you're on the right track, because, again, most of your grade, if not all of it, depends on that final exam.
1: Depending on the student's background, they may or may not have been graded on a curve before. Can you please explain how that works?
2: Yeah, the curve just so every law school has a different curve. Some have done away with it entirely, though most, I would say 90% of law schools still use some curve method. It essentially means that you are graded against the other people in your class. So, when the curve is set, there is typically it will say a certain percentage of the class has to get an A, a certain percentage has to get a C, and the, the bulk of the percentage has to get a B, for example. It's slightly more complicated than that. I don't have our exact curve in front of us, but it's sort of like if you look A, A minus, B plus, B, B minus, there's just a certain percentage of each of the class that has to get that grade. The reason this is important is because you're not really competing against the other people in your class, but you are a little bit in the sense that not everybody can get an A. That's the bad news because not everybody can get an A. Ultimately, there has to be a group in the class that's doing better than the rest of the class. The flip side of that is if the exam is really difficult, or if there's kind of you know a tricky set of questions, or no one's doing great, everyone can't fail. So just like everyone can't get an A, um, if the you know I've seen classes where people come out and they're just horrified at the exam question, or they feel like no one really got it. In that case, you're the curve is helping you because, you know, someone has to get an A and maybe that A isn't a perfect answer. It's just the best out of the class. Um, and most of the time, I think the curve helps people because it means that the bulk of the class is getting a B or a C um, depending on the school you're at. At Loyola, I think it means the bulk of the class gets like a B or a B plus in that range. Um, and that sometimes helps you, but that's off also a little different from undergrad and takes some getting used to. And I recommend that you don't worry too much about the curve because if you do, you never know how other people are doing. You never know what's going to happen with the grading. You kind of have to just focus on doing the best that you can do um, on your exams and in your studying and hope that it kind of shakes out accordingly.
1: You touched on this before, but can you please tell us more about the case and Socratic methods and why they're still used today?
2: Yeah. So, the case method is kind of what I was talking about before with all of our law comes from cases or judicial opinions. So, and they come from appellate opinions, which is also tricky because it's something you don't see on TV. And if you are like me and you were a first generation college and law student, and had never met a lawyer and was sort of only going by what you saw on TV. Um, The idea of an appellate opinion was new and different. What that means is that if um, I sue Bob, Bob and I go to trial, we have kind of what you see on TV with the judge and maybe a jury. Then if I lose, I can appeal that and I appeal it to an appellate level court. And um, at that point, we don't have witnesses. We don't really focus on the facts of the case. The appellate judges Their job is to decide, did the trial judge use the right law and interpret that correctly? So most of the opinions you read in law school are appellate opinions. They're written by appellate judges who have reviewed a case and and they're not looking at the facts. They're not deciding if Sally ran the red light or anything like that. They're looking at, did the court apply the law correctly? And why or why not? What does the law mean? So you read those to determine the law. Some like contracts typically starts with cases from the 16 and 1700s. So does property. So you really build on these cases. So even though a case might be 100 years old, there might be something we still use from it today. The Socratic method means that the law professors, some of them are getting out of this habit, but not all. It's still a common law school teaching method, although it's not as scary as it's presented on the paper chase and stuff like that, um, professors will call on you. They will say, "Miss Jones, can you tell me what the holding was in this case? And that can be daunting, especially the first couple of weeks when you're not even sure what a holding is. The good news is you're not being graded on this. It's class participation. You're not being graded if you're wrong. If you answer the wrong holding, no one's holding it against you. Students often feel very anxious about it because they're worried they're embarrassed or there's just a lot of pressure. Your other classmates don't care because they're worried about their own answers and and how they did in the case. And I can guarantee I am 15 years out of law school. So my first year was 17 years ago. I remember the first time I was cold-called, but I don't remember anyone else's answer. And no one that I went to school with remembers mine. And that's not just because it's been over a decade. I can guarantee that by the next day, no one remembers who got something wrong in class. It's all kind of your own, your own pressure on yourself. There's no reason to be embarrassed. The point of class is to understand the cases and understand what you didn't get reading on your own. Otherwise, we would just hand you these books and say, good luck, come back for the final. So the point of class is to clarify what you didn't understand. So getting the wrong answer when you're cold called is not a big deal. Even your professor. I can't speak for every single one. Every law school has at least, I think, one professor that's a little bit cranky. But 99% of us, we are rooting for you. We are not judging you if you get it wrong. It's a learning methodology because instead of us just telling you this was the holding of the case, you actually remember things better and you you learn how to get to the answer yourself better if we take you through that path. So the professor is not mad if you got it wrong or anything like that. You don't have to worry about that kind of stress.
1: And speaking of legal analysis, can you please explain what IRAC and CREAC are? Yeah, so when I talk about legal
2: writing being formulaic and not like what you did in English or political science or history if you are coming from a liberal arts background, um, it's a formula. So all of our legal writing from the exams you write to law school to memos we submit to court are formatted in an IRAC or CREAC format. So IRAC stands for Issue Rule Analysis Conclusion. CREAC is Conclusion Rule Explanation Analysis Conclusion. They're both the same thing. They just, I, I like to look at it as they're both the same basic recipe. Um, they just have slightly different flavoring or different frosting. I like to bake. So that to me, it, they're both cake recipes. They both just have different frosting. The basic concept that is that is similar in both is you're setting out a conclusion or an issue, which is the problem you're trying to solve. Then you're giving the rule the rule that you're using to solve this problem, then you're applying facts to that rule. So when I say it's a formula, it's very formulaic, like a lab formula, if you have a science background. I don't, but from what little I remember of sort of science and math classes, you have a formula. I like to think of algebra and stuff, right? You have a formula you need to apply and then you show your work. So that is what legal writing is. You're just doing it in sentences instead of numbers. Similarly, I like to look at it like a lab report. If you go into a biology lab, you might have a hypothesis of what you think might happen. Then you're applying your rule and then you're applying what you're doing in that lab. Legal writing is kind of the same and it gets tricky. If you, especially if you have a liberal arts background, if you were an English major, if you were a history major, I would I, I have a good friend who is an English professor and I would never show him any of my legal writing ever at all. Um, it's not what we would consider good writing depending on your background. So it's an adjustment. It takes a while to get used to. I remember my very first legal writing class. I got a C and I was, I thought I was a good writer. Like I had, I had never seen a C on a written paper that I had, that I had turned in. And I remember being so horrified and, um, I think we were all kind of in the same boat, like the classmates started talking and we realized that none of us did great. And it wasn't because we were doing anything wrong necessarily. We were just getting used to that writing Um, because I like to bake. I like to compare it to, you know, I have a great recipe for like a normal chocolate cake, like a chocolate sheet cake that you just, you know, is round and you put the frosting on and it's a birthday cake and I really like it. And so do other people, but I wanted to make a rolled cake, like a Swiss roll cake or a Yule log. And I was like, I'm just going to take that recipe and I'm going to roll it. Did not work. It fell apart. It was too fluffy and not dense enough to roll. And it just fell apart. That didn't mean that my recipe was bad or wrong, or it wasn't delicious. It just meant that it wasn't appropriate for this type of cake. So I, again, I like my baking analogies, but I want, if you're coming into law school, remember that some of the things you learned before law school, maybe about your writing specifically, it's not bad. It's not wrong. You're not doing anything wrong. It's just not appropriate for this context. So you're learning a new skill, a new
1: recipe, and that's fine. It just takes some getting used to. What are some common mistakes law students make in their first year?
2: Unlike undergrad, and I'm going to say other programs as well, although every sort of master's program, I just recently had a student who was also a doctor, so I can't speak to everybody's background in all programs, but unlike most undergrad colleges, it very much is a marathon and not a sprint. We are often used to, you have a quiz or a homework assignment due in certain classes, so you manage your time based on that. In law school, no one's checking up to make sure you did your reading and that you're on track. No one's checking in to make sure you're studying correctly. Um, So you have to do it yourself. And that can be really tricky. That can be a tricky time management issue. And you really have to learn to kind of set those goals for yourself since you don't have to turn in anything. When you read your cases and you brief them, and briefing just means you're taking notes on the cases you read, no one's asking you to turn those in. No one's checking to see if you did it. So you really have to apply yourself to your own time management and checking in on yourself. And that can be really tricky. Most people that go to law school, I think, are good students to begin with. And But even then, um, it's tricky because we're very much used to other people setting deadlines. The other mistake that people make is not doing enough practice. There's a lot of pressure to kind of memorize all the law, memorize the cases you read. And that's not really the goal. The final exam is usually what we call a hypo or a hypothetical. So if I were to give you a final exam, I would create a story kind of a story, um, depending on what class I was teaching, if I was teaching torts, which is a civil wrong, like a slip and fall or a car accident, I would create a story of something going terribly wrong and someone's bad day. And then you have to figure out what are the legal issues in that story. That's what we call a hypothetical. The more of those that you practice, not just reading, but writing them out, the better you're gonna do on that final exam. And students often skip that because I think they feel that they want to master all the knowledge and then maybe they'll do a practice hypothetical. That's not the case. So you really wanna be careful that you are putting in a lot of practice. On the actual exam, so say there's two hypotheticals, there's two stories to tackle. Students will often try to perfect the first one and then not leave enough time to finish the second one. So no matter how for, how perfect the first essay is, if you don't finish your second essay, you're not getting the grade that you probably want. Um, and that is really a number one problem I see when I when I work with students who maybe didn't do as well as they wanted to their first semester. We talk about their exams, we go through them, and inevitably they didn't finish part of the exam because they weren't really watching their time. And again, unlike undergrad, where the questions are short or um, short answer, and it feels like, well, why would you need to manage your time? The essays, you can keep revising them or writing them until you feel like you've got perfection, but then you're not leaving yourself time to finish the rest. The other is not following instructions. Often students that I see that make mistakes their first semester answer the question they wanted to see, meaning um, they see this story, they see the hypothetical, and they want to talk about something else and not the question that's specifically being asked. And that sounds slightly ridiculous if you have not done a practice hypothetical or a practice exam. You're probably thinking, why would anyone do that? The stress of the exam And plus, seeing a lot of things in the story that you want to talk about, it gets exciting because you're like, I know what that is. I know that law. I want to talk about it. But if that's not what's being asked, that's not going to help you. And then just not having enough clarity in the answers, not being clear about what you mean. So a good example, I always use this example of a pool. I once gave a contracts hypothetical Um, to my students as like a practice midterm. And I said that the homeowner was hiring a company to install a pool. Now, the reason this was important is because in contracts, you have two sources of law. You can have common law, which we've already talked about, or the uniform commercial code, which is a statute. If you are dealing with a good, so like the sale of a computer or a phone or kitchenware, That's going to be the Uniform Commercial Code. But if you're dealing with a service, someone building you a house, someone mowing your lawn, that's common law. So I thought when I was having this homeowner install the pool, that that was common law. In my mind, that was a service. Someone would come in, there'd probably be some shovels. I don't know how to install a pool. Um, But in my head, it was like someone's coming, there's construction. That's definitely common law. I had a handful of students start writing about the Uniform Commercial Code. And my first thought was, ooh, I didn't do a great job on teaching the uniform commercial code because they are really not getting it. So I asked them, I'm like, why would you think this was the uniform commercial code? And they said, well, a pool is a good. I'm still envisioning the in-ground pool that you like dig a hole and pour cement. And I'm like, how is this a good? I've really got to explain things better. So they finally explained to me that they were in their head, they were picturing like an above ground pool. That you could bring off a truck and put in the backyard. So that means if that's what they were picturing, they were absolutely correct on the law. They didn't need someone to review the Uniform Commercial Code or what a good was with them. What they needed to do in their essay is explain why they thought a pool was a good. Because I, as the author of this, was picturing something completely different. Similarly, this has happened on the bar and they actually had to throw one of the questions out, there was an April snowstorm, I think, and in one of the bar questions, and if you were someone from New England or the Midwest, you thought this was normal and foreseeable, and if you were someone taking the test from a southern state or maybe a west coast state, you thought that this was very odd and unforeseeable, and that changed your answer. So the takeaway is really, we all don't see facts the same. We all have different life experiences, we all have different backgrounds, we've lived different places, and all of this informs how we're going to interpret a fact. And so the better you explain yourself, the more clarity you bring to that explanation, the better. And for many students, it feels like they're explaining things that are very tedious, I get into this habit so much from both teaching and being a lawyer that my husband often makes fun of me. He's like, you don't need to explain that to me. I'm like, but I do, I do. It's part of my job. And it feels weird at first, because you're like, I'm explaining the obvious. And that's kind of what you need to do on an exam. And sometimes what you need to do in lawyering. The other thing that I think is different, and that you, that students should probably remember, or that is difficult for students, is if you read a case that's about a homeowner contracting with a company to install a pool. It's going to feel when you first read it like this is just about a pool and that you want to file this away in your kind of notes for when I see pool hypotheticals or pool stories, I'm going to use this case. But that's not what law school is about. You might need to compare that pool case to a case involving um, building of a treehouse Or um, it might not even be that obvious as a comparison. It could be something like we're comparing this pool situation to a situation of installing speakers in the concert hall. Another good example of this is with civil procedure, which is about how we bring a case through um, the courts. One of the most famous cases in civil procedure is called International Shoe. And it's about shoe salesmen. The building is actually in St. Louis, if anyone is as nerdy as I am and wants to go see it, but um, it's about shoe salesmen and selling shoes. But the case is used for a concept in civil procedure that I think every lawyer uses on a regular basis, no matter what type of case they're bringing. So it's not really about shoes. And so the thing that you have to kind of learn to do when reading cases is say, yes, I understand how this applies to the shoe salesman or the pool installation. But how does this apply? How can I use this in the broader sense? How can I use this in other hypotheticals? Because when you practice law, you're never going to find that exact case on point. I remember one of my most memorable cases when I was practicing involved puppies. The puppies were okay. No puppies were harmed. It's, it's all good. Um, but involved puppies. And there are no, case, I mean, I'm sure there are cases somewhere out there on puppies, but in terms of finding a case on point that I needed in my jurisdiction, there weren't puppies. So I had to find cases that didn't involve puppies, but involved the same legal concept. And that is tricky, that takes time. So I would also suggest giving yourself grace with that, knowing that when you first start reading cases, it's gonna feel like this is just about a shoe salesman, or this is just about a pool but there is a broader context and you have to think, how can I involve the shoe rule to cases that have nothing to do with footwear or even clothing or even selling things? How can I use this rule in a lot of different areas? And again, just like your class is there to help you kind of figure out the case, your professor is there to help you figure out the broader context. Um, And that would be another, it doesn't really fit into a neat category, but kind of a law school tip go to your professors. Again, there will always be one cranky one somewhere. We can't avoid that. But 99.9% of us want to see you. We want to help you figure out the broader context and we want to work with you. So go to those office hours, talk through the problems and say, how does this shoe salesman case apply to anything else I'm going to be doing? Can you help me walk through that?
1: As you mentioned, students will develop new ways of thinking and reasoning, which can be a stressful process. Do you have any advice on how to prioritize mental health in law school and on how to deal with imposter syndrome?
2: Yeah, so... um... I had big time imposter syndrome and we're not calling it that anymore. I have a colleague who's doing a lot of research on imposter syndrome and I forgot what we're supposed to call it instead. But the reason we're trying to change that narrative is when we say syndrome, it makes it sound like there's something wrong with you. You have an illness or something. And that's not the case because almost everybody feels that way. And I think it's more prevalent if you don't maybe look like the typical lawyer. Like I had never known lawyers um, in, you know, I didn't have lawyers in my family or that were friends of my parents or anything. Um, But a lot of lawyers on TV, they didn't look like me. They were, you know, older white men. And I think, so the imposter syndrome gets more prevalent the less you maybe look like the stereotypical lawyer. However, know that everybody has it. Even those that might look like a stereotypical lawyer sometimes suffer from it. And you're not alone. It's very normal. And I want you guys to go in knowing that when you kind of feel that imposter syndrome knocking on your door, just tell it to go away. And I know that sounds easier said than done. It wouldn't have been that easy for me, but I think the more you chat with your classmates and have honest discussions with them, or the more you talk to professors, like I will be very honest that I was convinced that I did, you know, did not belong in law school, that I was not going to be successful. And I will be very honest with my students and you guys that I still You know, I'm an academic, I've been licensed for 15 years, and I've been teaching for over a decade. And there's still a little voice in the back of my head that sometimes wonders if someone's going to kind of find me out (laughs) and realize that I um, am winging it or don't belong. And I think that that's very common. The more you talk to lawyers, the more you talk to your fellow law students, you're going to feel like, yeah, this is really common. Everyone feels like this. Um, And it's not me. There's not something wrong with me law school also kind of i I'm, I'm trying to do what i can to change this but and so are other people but it's a slow change i feel like we set you up to feel like there is imposter syndrome and no one's doing that intentionally it's just the way some of the work is designed like i said no one really tells you what common law is and i remember i i don't think i fully understood what it was until the end of my first semester And no one told me, no one was like, hey, this is what common law is and these words we keep talking about. And I just thought that I was the dummy in in my section that was kind of afraid to ask because I just assumed everybody else knew what was going on. So don't be afraid to ask um, because I'm willing to bet if you have that question, so do at least half of your classmates. Don't be afraid to ask professors or especially academic support professionals. Um, We are at almost every school. I'm here at Loyola, but I have colleagues and friends who are at almost every other law school. And if you are nervous about asking someone, we hopefully are the faces in the offices that you can go in and ask your stupid questions, which aren't stupid at all. But you feel like they're stupid and we will answer them without judgment. Um, I'm also trying to access Lex, which is a company they offer a lot of free pre-law and kind of 1L type of stuff. I have written for them a first-year glossary, which define things like case law and brief, and what is a 1L, and what are these words that people are just throwing around, like hypo, um, that I don't know. And my goal with that is to help you guys not have as much imposter syndrome to make you feel like you got the memo a little bit. And professors will sometimes use language that we forget I try to be very cognizant that people don't come into law school having this vocabulary. I certainly didn't. But even with that awareness, I will find myself slipping and talking to my first years about hypos and not explaining what that is, or talking to someone about CivPro and not explaining that that stands for civil procedure. And there's kind of an assumption that everyone speaks our language, and that's not the case. So don't be afraid to ask. There will be someone that is happy to answer your questions. And like I said, go to Access Lex. You can download the glossary that I wrote, and hopefully that will answer some of your questions that you might be embarrassed to ask. Also for mental health, lawyers have a really, really um, high rate of things like depression, substance abuse, and suicide, anxiety. And I think for years... Decades, probably. We've been taught to kind of hide it and self-medicate, not talk about it. That is not and should not be the case anymore. Um, The American Bar Association, as well as every state having a lawyer assistance program, is getting very serious about making sure that lawyers are also taking care of their mental health. One, because we're advocates for other people. And I think sometimes that means we put a lot of stress on our shoulders that are are coming from external sources, like our clients. Um, Some, depending on what kind of law you're practicing, it can be life and death issues. And you need to have a really good way to cope with your own mental health, not take on so much of that anxiety. Also law school is stressful, so is life. We've been in a pandemic for two years that has definitely caused a lot of trauma and stress for a lot of the population. Don't be afraid to ask for help. Most state bars, I say most, cause there's a, still a few out there. So you might wanna check with that state bar. One of the stigmas around asking for help is that like 50 years ago, most state bar applications would ask you if you've been medicated or ever hospitalized or things like that for mental health. They do not ask that anymore. So I can tell you for a fact that the Illinois State Bar, when you apply to take that bar exam and you apply to be a member of the bar, they do not wanna know if you've ever been medicated for anxiety or depression. They do not care or want to know if you've seen a therapist, even if you've been hospitalized for a mental health issue. They don't care and I, sh- I shouldn't say they don't care. That sounds really mean. It's not going to impact your application in a negative light at all. So so there are sometimes prevailing rumors, especially from the older lawyers, about a fear of getting help or seeking therapy or medication because of this kind of old school thought process. And it doesn't exist anymore. And every state, um, Illinois has a really good Illinois LAP or Lawyer's Assistance Program, but I know that it exists in every state. Um, And it is lawyers kind of helping lawyers with mental health issues. I also try to tell all my students that mental health is health, right? If you had diabetes, you wouldn't sort of not take your insulin. Um, You know, these are things that you have to do to make sure that you're healthy, both mentally and physically. Also, maybe you're having mental health issues and it's not amounting to needing to be medicated or even therapy. Maybe it just means that you need to take a day and um, take a day off. And that's fine. I feel like the legal profession in law school sort of gets into this competition of, I haven't had a day off in 85 years, and that's that's not very healthy. And I I like to think of it as keeping who you were before law school, during law school. So my one of my only law school regrets is that going into law school, I was a dancer. I danced fairly seriously up until my first year of law school. When I quit, one for timing, I could not be in a dance company and go to law school at the same time, but I quit even going to classes or going to the studio because I sort of thought that law school was too serious and I just did not have time for such frivolities. And that is one of my biggest regrets. And I have learned over the years that some people like to meditate, some people like to go for a run. I need to dance. That is my mental health kind of happy space. There is a colleague, a law professor. She was a law dean. And I think she's a professor now again, who is very well published, very well respected in her field. She is a competitive ballroom dancer. We will show up at uh, academic conferences and she's you know, still got glitter in her hair or something from a competition. And she's like, it's what keeps me sane. And she always encourages me to keep dancing. And it's different for everybody. Um, everyone has their own thing, but you need to keep with that. You need to schedule time for yourself, whether it's dancing, whether it's running, whether it's just having dinner with friends and you know having kind of that vent session, find what works for you, but don't be afraid to get help. Please don't be afraid to get help. And on that note, because this is sort of mental health related, if you had accommodations in undergrad, or you have ADHD, anxiety, things that might give you accommodations under the law, by the way. This isn't just, hey, your law school is being nice and giving you accommodation. Depending on the medical or mental health condition that you have, you are entitled to these accommodations under law. And I, I work with so many students who sort of didn't apply for them their first semester. And when I asked them why they thought that law school meant maybe they had to go at it alone or something, please don't do that. If you have a history of accommodations, law school is not the time to give them up. And the bar exam certainly is not the time to give them up. And if you apply for them during law school, it'll be easier to get them on the bar. Um, No one knows that you have accommodations. So at Loyola, you go to the Student Accessibility Center. They take your medical records and testing and documentation, determine what accommodations you need um, and they tell our Dean of Students, Dean Giselle, um, she does not tell anyone else. She And she doesn't know why students have the accommodations they do. She just knows she got a notification that John Smith gets this accommodation, but not why. Nothing, nothing is revealed to her about any kind of medical background. And she makes that accommodation happen. Your professors that are grading you, your classmates, no one knows about these accommodations. The only reason I know when students get accommodations is because they tell me or sometimes I help them through the process or I make the suggestion that they should get accommodations, but I don't have that list of who has accommodations and why. So it's very confidential. Um, It will never come back to impact your resume or your job prospects or relationships with professors or anything like that. Um, And even if your professors did know for some reason, which they don't, I can guarantee that like, close to 100% of Loyola faculty support that. And I say close to not because I know of anyone that doesn't, but because I I can't say for sure that I've talked to everybody. But there's a large group of us on campus that are currently looking for ways to make accommodations even more accessible. Um, And it is something we feel strongly about that we're lawyers. This is something you're entitled to by law. So take it.
1: So despite the challenges, why would you say it's still worth it to attend law school? Um, I
2: think it depends on the person. I loved law school. I know that that's not something people hear all the time because I feel like there's a lot of people out there that are like, oh, it gets better. Just get through law school and then you can practice. I loved law school, and that's why I ended up in academia and teaching. I loved the learning. I also, before I went to academia, I loved being an advocate for other people. Um, Lawyers are problem solvers. It's not remotely like it is on TV. That's maybe the one downside of law school. After a year of law school, any TV show, movie, anything that involves a trial or a lawyer, you'll start getting incredibly angry with that show and saying, that's not how it works. But it's, really nice to be able to problem solve for somebody and have the skills and the resources to help someone problem solve. Largely depends on what area of practice you go into, but having that skill set, I think is wonderful. I also enjoyed law school just because I enjoyed the way it helped me learn. You're learning to think in a new way. Before I went to law school, my parents I'm at my mother's house right now. She's actually listening to me. So if you hear a laughter in the background, Um, my parents were both worried that law school would make me more argumentative. Um, (laughs) I think, and I'm hearing her laugh. They're both like, we don't need you to be more argumentative. And there was a worry that I think there's a stereotype that law school just teaches you how to argue and that's it. And I think it actually teaches you how to see more sides of a discussion, more sides of an argument. You have to be able to see the other side to be able to defend against it. But that also, I think sometimes makes you more empathetic. It makes you, it gives you a better ability to problem solve. And it gives you a better ability to just, again, see different perspectives of whatever you're working on, whether that's applied to life and friend groups or family. The flip side is When I try to bring arguments, you know, with my husband or something like that, I I think anyone who's in a relationship with a lawyer will tell you that we're still frustrating to argue with. We want facts. We, we, We want kind of an analysis, not just I feel this way because, but all in all, I think it was a very good experience. I also, whenever you hear lawyers talk about how they hate their job or there's always lawyers out there that say, don't do it. Don't go to law school. I think they're in the wrong job. I think, and I don't mean they're in the wrong job in the sense that they shouldn't be a lawyer. There's so many ways to use your law degree and your license. The very first job I had was working um, in what we call alternative dispute resolution. And it dealt a lot with workman's compensation and similar issues. I hated it. It just, it was not, it was not for me. And then I ended up finding work in small business law, which Going into law school, if you had told me that, that I would love corporate law, I would have called you ridiculous, but problem solving for small businesses, like just either sole uh, sole business owners or kind of like, you know, businesses owned by two or three people helping solve their problems, negotiate contracts, things like that. I found I really loved, and then I found academia and loved that even more. So when you hear lawyers that just talk about how miserable their life is or don't do it, keep in mind that they maybe haven't found the right fit for them and um, they're keeping themselves miserable. And I say that in the sense that I know sometimes there are bills to be paid and things like that. So it's not always that simple, but I think there's a type of law to be practiced out there for anyone who's interested in law school. And um, even if you don't want to practice law, getting a JD, I think really helps you organize your thoughts, really helps you learn to look at primary sources and make decisions for yourself. And that can be helpful in a lot of different job prospects.
1: Great. Thank you so much for your time, Professor Hale. Thank you for having me.
0: That's all from us here at The Podvocate. Thanks again for joining us today. Our team wants to hear from you. If there's a topic you want the show to cover, please email us at thepodvocate at gmail.com. Visit our website at thepodvocate.com for more information on this episode and our guests. The Podvocate is produced by WLUW, the student-run, independent radio station broadcasting from the School of Communications at Loyola University, Chicago. Our senior editors are Olivia Ashe, Emmett Harrington, and Lenny Reinhart. Our associate editors are Christy Paredes and Marissa Polowitz. Our editor-in-chief is Leanne Jossett. Special thanks to Professor John Dane for providing the resources and support to make this show possible. From Loyola University Chicago School of Law, this has been The Podvokit.